Good afternoon. Those of you who are on the West Coast, good morning or on Pacific time. Uh, we're here on the Eastern Standard Time and I wanna welcome you to Future You. This is a uh, forum for discussing the influences of neoliberalism on public higher education. And today we have a scholar, John S. Levin, who is going to be speaking on uh, the interplay of academic and market values in contemporary higher education. Title of his presentation is sometimes contradictory, sometimes complementary. Before we get to that, though, I would like to invite Amy Jamison, who is our discussant today, to introduce herself. Jam Amy. Thanks, Ruben, um, and greetings to everyone. My name is Amy Jamison. I am co-director of the Alliance for African Partnership um, based at Michigan State University's office. Um, I'm also former uh, associate director of our Center for Gender uh, in Global Context at Michigan State University. Um, I have a background in higher education research, specifically focused on African higher education, although I've done some work in, in US higher education and now largely in an administrative role here at MSU supporting faculty research and engagement globally. Thanks. Thank you, Amy. Frank? Thank you, Ruben. Uh, my name is Frank Fear, and uh, I'm Professor Emeritus at Michigan State University. And as I was mentioning to our guest, uh, it's been almost 10 years uh, since uh, I left East Lansing, but uh, enjoyed my nearly 40 years there in a variety of roles uh, as a faculty member, as a department chair, program director uh, in uh, MSU Extension statewide, uh, the Bailey Scholars Program, then ending my career as Vice Dean of the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Uh, like Ruben, I'm a sociologist by education, all three degrees, uh, focusing specifically on rural community development and organization development, and have been focusing the last 15 years really on uh, higher education and the influence of neoliberalism uh, on higher education and the impact that has been happening and what we can do in response. And I might say an unpaid <laughs> plug for John's work. Um, uh, the article that uh, we posted on site is outstanding and his 2020 book, um, University Management, I'm looking at it right now, The Academic Profession and Neoliberalism is one of the best I've, uh, I've read, completely accessible to folks who are working in this space and also all faculty and administrators. So we're really pleased to have John with us today. Thank you, Frank. And I'm Ruben Martinez, Professor of Sociology here at Michigan State University. This forum stems from a conference that I organized back in 2015 at Michigan State University. And we had several colleagues from Canada come down to the uh, conference. So we're very pleased to have one of their fellow scholars uh, with us today. Uh, John is a uh, retired faculty member from the University of California at Riverside but uh, he started his career as a community college faculty member and administrator in Canada, uh, and then joined the University of Arizona, joined uh, the uh, North Carolina State University in 2002 as a distinguished professor, and has uh, until recently occupied an endowed chair uh, over at the University of California, where I, by the way, got my doctoral degree back in 1984. Uh, we know that uh, neoliberalism has a lot of different uh, dimensions and levels and so forth. Uh, and one of them, which we know is very, very important, 
is that not only is it to change the rules of the game, but to produce entrepreneurial subjects. Uh, and so what John does is he's going to speak to how entrepreneurial subjects are being made of faculty uh, and I presume staff and others in the academy. So with that, John, it's great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to join us and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, thanks very much. Um, the, issue, uh, are, the issues are complicated and, and I've been looking at neoliberalism probably for some 20 to 25 years as a phenomenon that has in, implicated itself or inserted itself into higher education in various ways. And I started off, I think, under the influence of Larry Leslie and Sheila Slaughter with their concept of academic capitalism. And then I moved over to see to what extent did academic capitalism, uh, which is really where we think of as faculty as entrepreneurs, academic capitalism uh, infiltrate community colleges. Um, and I found not much evidence of that there, but I did see the intrusion of what I would call market or economic values into institutions other than research universities, which would be community colleges and state universities. Um, so that's one thing. It's sort of there's a, it's a long it's a long road, and I've gone back and forth. I've met people who think that neoliberalism in higher education is a positive attribute, and others who think of it in a very negative way, almost as if it's uh, you know similar to what Henry Giroux has called the terror of neoliberalism. Uh, and then in the in the recent in recent years, more of my research involved interviewing faculty at different sites, community colleges, research institutes, uh, public uh, universities, four-year universities. And what I noticed is that there were varying degrees of values that had infiltrated these institutions. And I also determined that in some cases, some neoliberal values were consistent with, or at least compatible with academic values. And I'm going to get to that later. I'm going to try and talk about the sort of uh, what I call neoliberal logic and academic logic, which have uh, occupied our institutions. But my, I'm going to begin with this notion that higher education in the United States, both scholarship and practice, has somewhat ignored the deleterious implications of neoliberalism, really maybe talk about the positive aspects of neoliberalism, which may be you know, eff greater efficiency, uh, resource development, uh, but has ignored some of the del deleterious implications um, and has accepted some of these tenets of neoliberalism as if they are compatible with the university values or academic values. I look at what I refer to as institutional logics, that is the values, the systems, the mechanisms which function within an institution. And I've argued that there are two primary ones in the university today, academic logics and neoliberal logics. I'm going to get to another one later, which is uh, the logic of inclusion, of social inclusion. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is neoliberalism as a theory. I'm not going to talk about this in great detail. 
but I think it's one of the few social theories that we use in the social sciences that it's really a kind of contradiction. That is, it's a acceptance of a theory on the one hand, which is the theory of neoliberalism, and at the same time, it's a critique of that theory. Um, it's, it's a kind of validation of neoliberal values, that is values where the market is, super, is supreme, where the individual and individual worth are what we pursue, where um, there are very little few distinctions about difference in people's backgrounds, that there's a level playing field. And that theory at the same time valorizes opposing or contrasting characterizations and values of neoliberalism. And the, the theory should really be called anti-neoliberalism as opposed to liberalism. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with something very specific because neoliberalism as theory or as social theory is grand. It's, it's an overarching, all pervasive notion. I wanna go drill down a bit. I'm gonna drill down to, uh, okay, we're almost there. I'm gonna drill down to the level of faculty, full-time faculty, there you go, okay. That's good to leave that there. I'm gonna drill down to full-time faculty at a, at a university, just as an example. And we could use a community college, we could use a comprehensive university as well, but I'm gonna use this as a research university. And I'm gonna focus on faculty evaluation to give you some examples of where neoliberalism has infiltrated and how it's different from or similar to and different from academic values. So in faculty evaluation, I want us to consider what's called promotion, that is moving from rank to rank, assistant to associate to full, uh, to the uh, uh, achievement of tenure, which is when you arrive usually at an associate professor and you're given this notion of guaranteed, and I use quotation marks, guaranteed employment. Uh, and then these appraisals or evaluations, which lead to merit, which also lead to perhaps more money in, at some universities. And then it may also apply to post-tenure review, uh, which is going on. All of these have to do, on the one hand, with somebody's legitimacy as a professor or as a person or as a professional. The identity is that you are legitimate and I guess we could say the further up you go, the more legitimate you are. But it also has something to do with money because each stage usually, well, it certainly does from assistant to associate to full, the usually is accompanied by salary increases. So there's a somewhat of an in salary in, incentive. And I'm gonna argue that this promotion and tenure, this evaluation system is central to faculty behaviors even though we can all say, oh, it's just evaluation, oh, it's just checking to see how you're doing, it's actually central to how faculty behave in their day-to-day. -day. And the focus, the focus of evaluation for faculty is on outcomes, what they've produced, not how they've done it really, on the observable and the measurable, and on the normative. That is what is prescribed, what is expected of faculty in their behaviors. That is, they're going to, in teaching, do they engage students? Do they show up on time? Uh, and often in most universities, uh, student evaluations are the form that, that 
serve as teaching evaluations and they're measurable uh, publications for research and they're measurable and service to some extent even that's measurable not the quality but the quantity i've been on 32 committees i've been on you know journal uh, review boards so here's the here's what i think is maybe a telling tale which is the historical comparison I'm going to start in 1960, because I'm sure that if I start in before 1960, most of us have not been in the academy before then and would have no knowledge or little knowledge unless we've been reading the history books. But from about 1960s to the late 1980s and maybe into the 1990s, the standard of faculty evaluation was one matter. And so I'm going to look and say, what's altered in, in since that period of when we think about, I guess we could say we have nostalgia for that period, and we assume there was no neoliberalism there, there were no values there that were uh, essentially economic values, and it was dominated by academic values, which is not the case, but for argument's sake, I want to go there. So what's, has, what's altered during these period? Well, firstly, there are fewer tenure track positions at universities. And there's increase in contingent labor at universities, including increases in postdoctoral positions, particularly in the sciences. You don't really go from a, from a doctorate degree in the sciences into an assistant professorship anymore. You go to a postdoc, and that can last two to three to four years. The other aspect that's changed is there are state allocations in the US across the board have diminished. And at the same time, costs have risen, including faculty salaries, including administrative costs. Usually salaries are the big 80% number of expenditures at a university. They have risen. And so there's been competition for resources in universities. And I don't need to tell all of you, particularly if you're well-read in the field, about the rise of costs. We could go to Derek Bach and commercialization of higher education. We could you know, talk about academic capitalism, the costs. Uh, there are lots of books and, and, and discussions about that and competition for resources. Also, what we've noticed, and then I think partially reflected in mind, notion of globalization of higher education in what I've referred to as so as Terry Seddon, a co-author of mine from many years ago, in traveling policies and practices. And that means traveling around the globe. We see them show up in Europe, in Asia, uh, in, in, uh, in the US, in Australia. And these practices mean greater accountability, what one scholar has called the audit culture the rankings of universities and programs across the world, and the marketing for student numbers. These are endemic, they occur around the world. This has changed since the late 80s and early 90s. We also see somewhat related to that, the rise of international rankings of universities and programs. And these include publications now in the old good old days, was largely reputation. You ask the dean to fill out a form. The dean says, yes, I love Yale's School of Education because Yale's a great institution, even though Yale doesn't have a School of Education or a Department of Education. But it was all reputation. Uh, now it's including 
other matters, such as ratio of faculty to students, uh, quality of the library, and particularly in the, in the Shanghai rankings, it includes publications and citations. Uh, and the other, which is so obvious we forget about it most often, is technology, right? So technology has come in to give us data that we had not, not before had access to or it was too difficult. So citation data. So when you're going for evaluation, people are asking about number of citations or what indexes this publication. They're asking for performance measures, for displays of performance measures. We're looking at comparisons. We can compare electronically how one program at one university is doing versus another, how one faculty member is doing versus another. And of course, even student evaluations, which used to be done by pencil or paper in a classroom, are now done not only electronically, and the participation rate, by the way, is much lower now that they've been done electronically. They are done on iPhones or phones, on personal devices. I've talked to students who said, I filled out my evaluation while walking from my classroom to my car. That's what they're doing in evaluation. So it's a kind of I want to call it like dislike mentality that's, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, it's not sitting in a classroom and saying, uh, did I like this professor? I didn't. It was I here, wasn't I? It's, 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 it's the technology that's changed that. So those are changes that have occurred, which have influenced faculty evaluation. And so what do we see in the present in faculty evaluation? Well, first of all, we see self-responsibility for performance profiling. That is, it's up to you as an individual faculty member to create a profile for yourself with data to show off how well you're doing. Stephen Bell called this performativity, a great concept. That is, the individual is an actor. And I go back, I mean, none of this is new. I go back to Irving Goffman, who's the sociologist here, I think Ruben is. Irving Goffman, I think it was 1959, presentation of self in everyday life. And that's what faculty are doing professionally now, not in everyday life, but in their profession. They are posting, they have their own websites, they are performing. And when it comes to the evaluation of faculty, it's not really that somebody collects data for you do the collecting of data, you package the data. And usually, at least at my university in the last decade, it's been electronically collected in the form that the electronic systems want you to collect that data. And so it's easy for comparison measure with other people because we have the form in the same way. It, Anyway, I won't go into great detail. I have a, so yourself, it's the selling of the professional self, or we could call it the entrepreneurial self we've become. And it's ongoing. It's constant. It's not once every five years or whenever you go up for a promotion, this is going to happen. At my, at my former university, UC Riverside, and at UCs, you're evaluated every two or three years and you have to have the whole file ready and you're thinking about it all the time. You're thinking about making decisions about, should I serve on this committee or that committee? Should I uh, review for this journal or that journal? 
the higher the level of the journal, the more points I'm going to get, even though the, the points can be 0.001%. That's what we're dealing with. You know, we're dealing with marginal differences. This is so good for neoliberalism. The marginal differences make the big difference psychologically. It's also comparative now. We're comparing ourselves as faculty to norms, to others, believe it or not because the data is available for us to see to others, to aspirational others. We think of ourselves as, I'm an ordinary faculty member, I'm a professor, I've achieved the highest rank possible. What is there? Oh yes, there's so-and-so, the greatest of all time in my field. I'm gonna compare myself to that person who's published 12 books and written 142 articles. And then there's the comparison of the self to the ideal self which again, we're back to Stephen Ball's notion of, of, uh, of, uh, of performativity, that you've internalized these values and you know what it, excellence or perfection is and you keep thinking about that kind of perfection. And that goes back to this notion in neoliberalism or anti-neoliberalism theory of self-surveillance. You become as a faculty member, the jailer if we can use the Fukono, the jailer of self. You are looking at yourself and observing yourself and saying, am I living up to the expectations of the ideal of what I'm supposed to be as the perfect professor? Have I done enough? And the answer, of course, is always no. So this to me was always the uh, kind of exemplar image of what it is inside yourself once you've recognized what, again, 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 I'd say Giraud's terror of neoliberalism is the self-recognition of what is it and what have I done to myself? Okay, well, next slide. Okay, so here are some of my questions. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to faculty evaluation in a second, but do we think about this terror of neoliberalism as an affirmation of the pervasiveness and the presence of neoliberalism, its behavior. That is, once we recognize the trap or the prison that we're in, have we then justified or rationalized or validated the presence of neoliberalism, which we cannot move out of? It's impossible. Can opposition to neoliberalism, that is anti-neoliberalism, detach or remove us from the effects of neoliberalism. And I would say so far in my, my so far in my research, I'm done with research, but in my history of research on faculty, the answer is it's not likely you can oppose and detach yourself from neoliberalism. There is a movement called slow scholarship, which I've written about a little bit, uh, that attempts to make that move, but once they're in the institution called the academy or the university, it's difficult to say, I don't really care about merit, I don't care about promotion, I don't care about these things, they're there. And then, and part of that is the way that the critique of neoliberalism, those of us who have been critiquing it for years, does it liberate us? I don't think it does. I think, so to that extent, it's a kind of I don't know, call it a cul-de-sac. Okay, let's go on, next slide. Uh, and okay, so I'm gonna come to these logics in a minute, but I wanna finish 
with with uh, just the thoughts about the faculty evaluation. Don't get me wrong. There has always been in faculty evaluation a prominence of competition or of doing well. This notion of merit. We have this assumption of what merit is, and those those concepts of what it is to be a good faculty member or a superior faculty member or an ideal faculty member come from what I call academic values. And those values include what we might call peer review. We say, because we're professionals, we are autonomous from the state, even from the institution. And the only people, the only legitimate people who can evaluate us are our peers because they know. So we go through peer review, both in publication and in evaluation. We have this concept of merit, which changes, but it's fairly communal in, its underst in our understanding. We believe or we value the production and dissemination of knowledge. This is a value, a social value, or sorry, a value, a professional value of, of the academy. And as I said, we, we value autonomy. That is, we have the freedom, we call it academic freedom. We have the, the freedom to do research on subjects or on topics which are of interest to us, interest-generated topics, right? Some of those, some of those are also compatible with what I would call neoliberal values, which I call neoliberal logics. And so I'm just going to explain logics very quickly, and then I use values and logic sometimes synonymously, and I shouldn't. But logics are those meaning systems and practices in organizations that lead to action. Universities contain a dominant logic or dominant logics, and they unite the actors. So academic logic unites academics, and neoliberal logics doesn't always unite academics, but it's a dominant way of, of meaning within an institution. And organizational actors adhere to these, act, these values or these logics and behave in that way. And as I've said here, these logics are deeply entrenched within an organization and give meaning to organizational life. Okay, the logics provide stability for an institution. They are kind of the team we've signed on to value. And for generations, for decades, academic logic is one of those institutional logics of the university, of the four-year college, of the community college. I think community college, even though we sometimes denigrate their value, their main values continue to be academic logic. They have a stronger emphasis on the teaching of students and the dissemination of knowledge rather than the production of knowledge. And I would say that community colleges, at least in their logic, have a student-centered focus. Universities probably have more of a research-centered focus. Okay. The one aspect, can we go to the next slide? The one aspect that differentiates academic logic from neoliberal logic is that neoliberal logic values at its heart the advancement or the gratification of the individual. Now we could say that academic logic does that too in the merit and promotion system, that we are professionals 
and we are gratifying ourselves. And that's probably true in the evaluation system. But in the professional mode, our primary underlying motive is social good. That is, professionals have a social contract with their society that they will benefit society and not take financial gain instead of over the benefits to society. That is not compatible with neoliberal logics. Neoliberal logics would say, whatever you can gain individually, it's, it's valuable. So let's talk about resistance to neoliberalism. Is the critique of neoliberalism resistance to neoliberalism, or is it the justification and the acknowledgement of the pervasiveness of neoliberalism? Can we resist neoliberalism in education? And if, if so, how? And if not, why not? Uh, I would say we can't. And I would say that it's pervasive. Uh, and I would say that uh, the continued critique of neoliberalism in higher education is not necessarily going to get us anywhere. So then the question is, and I don't have an answer for this. If I did, I would write about it. What is it that we do? Do we avoid talking about neoliberalism? Do we go back to uh, the value, academic values? Uh, or do we simply move on to another topic? Um, I think I'm done for now. I'll be happy to answer questions and continue the conversation. Thank you very much, John. We'll turn now to Amy for some comments and then to Frank after that. Amy? Hi, thanks, Ruben. And, and thanks, John, for this um, great introduction to this topic and, and really um, looking at this from a framework of faculty, especially. I think that's quite important. Um, I'll try to do justice to some of the things that you brought up and, and maybe uh, propose some, some other frames for looking at, at, at things. But I like where you start in terms of the faculty evaluation. I think that's a, a critical point in terms of uh, we measure what we value, right? And, and so this idea that we measure what we value so we can see what the institutions value and what and where the academic values fall in, uh, where the institutional values fall in and how that drives faculty behavior. I think that's a, a critical point and, and looking at how that changed has changed over time is really important. Um, you look at, uh, especially I, I think the connection with the faculty member who's looking at that self-responsibility for creating their profile and reporting. And I'm thinking of a colleague of mine who, you know, has taken courses on how to promote her work on Twitter and, and how to engage this, um, really engages with that entrepreneurial faculty member that Ruben brought up at the beginning of this, this section. I, I, I feel like that's very real in many faculty members' lives in terms of working to, to promote their own work and, and sort of um, linking up to this idealized version of what an academic should be and, and could be, um, and of course, never realize that, that ideal goal. I think that's a, a I think it's a, a real stress in, in faculty lives and, and real mental health issue. We've talked about this before in this forum around how um, sort of these neoliberal drivers can contribute to stress and, and mental health issues among faculty. So that's that's a quite a critical point. Um, 
and then um but linking back to academic values and sort of what is the goal of the work that we do um, and, and how those overlap with, with neoliberal values, I found quite helpful. Um, and the assumption of merit and, and defining those academic values themselves, I think we need to look critically at that as well. Um, uh, because academic values are often defined from a particular perspective um, with prioritizing particular um, contexts disciplines, et cetera. Um, I'm thinking of, uh, especially working in international contexts as I do, looking at how academic values and, and merit are defined, um, typically tends toward the Western framework. And, and so you do link in your last side, neoliberalism and colonialism in that. And I think there's a real overlap between um, the sort of the rejection or the anti-neoliberalism and the anti-colonialism movements within academia and similar barriers to really overcoming those things. I mean, the, the bar is high and I, I have to share your, um, I have to share your uh, analysis that the, the resistance to this and, and the movement against it, it it's, it's quite difficult, that opposition piece to, to be opposed to neoliberal values and colonial values in that same framework um, is, is quite a struggle um, as, as, as we're so embedded in these systems. <clears throat> and then the, the pointing out of the, the motive of, of academic values in terms of social good and benefits to society opposing to neoliberal logics. And I had read your 2015 article um, before this, and I hadn't yet had a chance to read your book, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but there was a, a thinking through this idea of competition in academia and, and whether competition, and this is, you brought this out in the evaluation piece, whether competition is, it is an important driver of academic work, but, how, where are the interplays between competition and collaboration if we're gonna meet that goal of social good and benefits to society? That's not something, that's not a goal that each of us as academics can do by ourselves. And, and to, to bring together, this is part of my work, is to try to work within that system of competition in academia to bring together collaboration and, and, and that work towards the greater good so I kind of, I wonder in your research, have you found that sort of challenge between individual competition, autonomy with um, collaboration and that movement towards, towards um, social good or benefits to society, to society as part of the academic value? And basically those are the main ideas that I kind of uh, picked out from what you were saying and, and some of my experience, but um, I really uh, appreciate what you shared here today. I think looking at this from the lens of those faculty members um, is, is crucial, as I said before, um, and because these are the players within the institution that reflects those academic values, but are coming up against those neo, neoliberal values that are overlaying the institutions. And just try to see how these uh, faculty members are negotiating that institutional landscape and that broader um, globalization landscape, I, I think is, is critical. So thank you. Thanks, good comments. Can I just make, I'll make a few quick comments. 
One is people can hold conflicting or dual value systems within themselves and act one way one time and one another. And I'm thinking of science faculty in particular engineering science faculty who in my view, they're the ones I really feel for because at research universities, they are really under the gun to uh, achieve research grants that will pay for their careers essentially in the United States. Now, this is not true in other parts of the world. Sometimes governments supply people with, you know, lab students, all of that stuff. But in the United States, if you're in the, you know, sciences, you have to gain grants, million dollar grants, and that's highly competitive. You have to figure out how to compete, National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, or you don't have a lab and you can't you can't work. You can't get promoted. You you know, you may as well go into administration if your grants run out or something like that. So we see science people doing these good things. Um, so, but they can still hold academic values deeply. They can still think that material gain and financial gain is not a good idea. But they have to do that. And I, you know, and you'll see in the book, the twenty twenty book, where we. Talk about deans. Deans can be the same way. They can hold deeply held academic values because they still see themselves, at least at the University of California, and I think most major universities, still see themselves as faculty in a strange way, even though, and some of them still do research. Most of them don't teach. And they still hold very strong academic values, the same values that all faculty have. But they realize that in order to continue their programs, their colleges, their departments, they have to raise money and they have to incentivize or penalize faculty to raise money. And there's a conundrum here. I think it's a kind of a, those of us in the social sciences and humanities we can rest a little easier. I think we're a little bit off the hook. If I'm, a, I'm an English professor, I don't have to go get the grants quite the same way. I can produce, I can be, and, and then I wanted to touch on your collaboration issue. And the sciences is becoming imperative for these folks to collaborate, 20, 30 people on a study. You can still be single-minded in sociology or, or philosophy, you can still write that article all by yourself. That's almost unheard of in the sciences. But we do that, you know, in, the, in this, it, it, collabor in my view, collaboration in the social sciences and the humanities is different from collaboration in the sciences and in engineering. I think we do that, or I've done that as an, in, in the social sciences, because I enjoy working with others. I enjoy producing knowledge with others or I bring in graduate students because I want them to be part of the process and learn what we're doing. And I gain from them much more than in a sense they gain from me because they come in with new ideas that I hadn't thought of. That's what I really like. So that's one thing I think that I we have to think about. You can hold one value system and perform according to an entirely different one. The faculty evaluation system in my mind sort of cuts across both of those and it's institutionalized. And in a strange way, it's a compromise between the faculty and the administration. 
the administration, we must evaluate the faculty says, okay, we'll create the evaluation system. And I sat on at my university in the last three years, uh, the teaching evaluation committee. And I was shocked, not shocked, surprised <laughs> that the faculty and the administration could line up because we had both faculty from our Senate and administrators could line up and agree on a system of evaluation of teaching. And it's because the assumption was by both of them that we have to evaluate faculty. That's the first thing. And we have to evaluate it in a certain way. And once they jump into that assumption, then they both can find common ground. I was upset because I said, where's faculty autonomy here? Why do you have a system that's standardized for all faculty and says all faculty must do this under these, and, and you're gonna evaluate them. I mean, and you're gonna promote them and give them money based on this? That to me is a highly regulated and if not neoliberal, at least quasi neoliberal system, you know. Now, is it better than the, the, the guys in the 1940s and 50s sitting around the department table drinking coffee or tea and saying, uh, you know, Randolph's a good colleague, we need to promote him. You know? And I use mm -hmm. the male because it's primarily men sitting around the table. Um, I don't know if that's better, you know, which is better, which is, again, I wanna say nostalgia is is a is a is a value of something that never existed in a sense. It's we we fondly think of something that didn't happen, right? You just have to read C.P. Snow's The Masters to realize how mm -hmm. corrupt the old you know Oxford Cambridge system was, uh, and misogynist and everything. These were not good systems the good old days. Uh, but are we falling into a trap where? We're, we're messing ourselves up. While you were talking, last thing I'll say is while you were talking, I was thinking that movements seem to be much more attractive than institutions. So I was thinking of the environmental movement. I was thinking, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I could be liberated from neoliberalism in the environmental movement. I'm just fighting for what I want, you know, with a group of people. But once you institutionalize something, you hit that what I call socioeconomic context. And that context defines you. I think the sociologist, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, I'll get it, in a, um, get it in a minute. Uh, he talked about, you know, well, Giddens did structuration, I suppose, to some extent, that's what happens in institutional, in institutionalism. Um, and, and, in other in other ways, it's it's the larger society as a whole that makes the rules that runs our institutions. And if we live in an environment that's largely neoliberal or in in today, I think it may be easier to say hyper capitalist. Mm -hmm. In a sense, I mean, are we any different from China? Not really that different from China and its sort of material values, its productivity. What is it that we actually behave differently than in China? They surveil, of course they surveil, but we surveil too. We do, we carry out surveillance. Anyway, I don't want to get into that political context. I'll stop.
John, can uh, Ruben, is it okay if I just come in and ask a follow-up question of, of John? Sure. In terms of, you were talking about the evaluations and how that happened previously, you know, a bunch of mostly white men sitting around a table saying, this guy seems like a good guy or whatever. So there's this, I mean, there's this benefit now of these systems that are trying to move towards transparency and, and equity. But what gets, I mean, I'm trying to like suss out what gets lost in that and, and how do you balance that sort of autonomy and with, with transparency, with equity and, and bringing in the inclusion values that you touched on at one point, you know, because now we can say, oh, if I, I can look at my evaluation and say, okay, I know what my, my benchmarks are and I can right. move towards that. And I know what I'm being measured on rather than some sort of black box that a bunch of guys are sitting around a table talking about, uh, you know, is it just that we need to then think about, okay, we need that transparency, but then reshaping the values that we use to make that system, I guess. Does that, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it, it does. I, I think I should have mentioned it before what we don't see anymore in evaluations because it can't be measured is this concept of collegiality. Mm, Who's a good fun. colleague? And that is, you know, th that's susceptible to a lot of personal bias, but without it, we can promote, evaluate, uh, give tenure to a faculty member who is going to ruin our department and the university even though yeah. they're productive. So productivity alone should not be the sole measure. There has to be some, I don't mean you have to get along with everybody or be likable, but you have to be a good colleague. And how we def I define that as sharing in the workload. Okay, and that would solve the, the purported gender disparity of women doing more of the service work. Uh, but I think you have to be able to share the workload, share the students, you know, and you have to be showing up, not just on a committee and not there mentally or physically. And you have to be able to tolerate difference as a faculty member, not my way or the highway. And I have had experience at all the institutions with, you know, the some of the worst faculty members that you could imagine, I'm sure you all have had that too, who you said, how did this, how did, firstly, the mistake is made when you hire the person. That's the first mistake. You can't ever get out of that. But after that, if you keep evaluating the person without an element of uh, the quality of collegiality, then you're in big, then you're in big trouble and you're, you're perpetuating, you're perpetuating, uh, uh, tragic toxic systems really <laughs> yeah yeah toxic tox toxicity is a good point um and the old way was too biased it was too much i think old boys collegiality but somewhere we we should be able to bring in something doesn't have does it have to be measurable as opposed to as opposed to be observable right in other words good manners good taste not terrorizing people, terrorize. I mean, I've known faculty members who terrorize staff, right? And there's, and our system, you see our systems within our universities for faculty behavior are 
created for ideal faculty members. We do not assume that somebody's going to come on campus and threaten people with a rifle, which has happened on my campus, or that people are going to try to blackmail, literally blackmail other, other colleagues into voting in a certain way. We, we don't have systems to deal with that. We just don't. But we need to think about that in terms of evaluation of faculty. Right. Hope that answers some of your questions. Ruben, probably. Frank, turn to you now. Thank you very much, Ruben, and thank you, John and Amy, for very, very thoughtful presentations. I'm going to actually start and end with uh, concepts that have come up today. They're both in uh, John's uh, 2020 book, too. One is nostalgia, and I agree with John. It's you know thinking fondly of something that never really exist, existed except in your mind. And then Amy talked about colonization. I'm going to end there. Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day, actually, when I was involved in an endeavor. You know, nowadays I, I sort of get parachuted into higher education, so I have episodic, ad hoc occasions versus an immersion experience before. And when I think about sort of the impact of, that I've had in my work, particularly with students on the immersion side, for years I taught uh, a course in, in organizations with the thinking that, you know, it doesn't make any difference what line of work you go into, whether it's public, private, nonprofit sector, it's likely you're going to be spending most of your time in organizations. And one of the literatures I drew upon extensively was what I'll call the images of organization literature, that, that each of us has a primary uh, image uh, of organization, uh, maybe a collection, maybe a hybrid, but there's a dominant way of thinking. And other, way, other images that we just don't care to look at, we look the other way. Um, and one of the things that I never thought about when I was teaching this years ago is how relevant that literature would be. And students have told me it's helped them through more than a few tussles they've had in the workplace to understand it first and know how to respond. But that I would be saying the same thing myself. And using the language that John has, which I like, the logics, and also the language of academic and marketing. When I started way back in 1978 at Michigan State, but it doesn't, Michigan State could be any state or any college, any university. Uh, it was the academic values that reigned supreme. And my mentors embraced uh, academic values. It was their image, preferred image of, of the university of the college, their image of an organization. And one of the things I noticed as I, as I got into administration and would talk even with scholars of organizations, about what would be helpful uh, to me. And I was mentioning John before the program, one of the first books, if not the first book that was given to me was Keller's book on academic strategy. And I, I read it and I said, you know, I understand why this is being, and I'll use the word foisted uh, on, uh, on higher education administrators because it's easy to take a business book, a business vocabulary off the shelf and apply it to some other domain. But I said, you know, that's, this is troubling me. This book is troubling. The language is troubling. The outcomes are troubling. And I'm using another concept from John's work. 
it's not as though, again, with nostalgia, that the academic values uh, reign supreme. It's a matter of blending. And what I noticed over time, and I shouldn't laugh because, but the alternative is to cry, is that the number of colleagues around the table, especially administratively, their preferred image of organization was less academic and, and more marketing to the point that over time, it sped up and it deepened to the point that by the time uh, I was at the, I was finished literally and figuratively, um, there were very, very few colleagues who um, accentuated in administration the academic values. And all the metrics that really mattered uh, was, were, was, was the market values. And I've mentioned this to Amy most recent, very recently. The thing, and I hate to put it this way, but the incident, the language that was a clincher that I had to, I had to leave was when I was asked to make sure that in our international portfolio, we had to have more big plays, big plays. In other words, big money projects. And I asked myself for someone who believes that the center of gravity in the academy is the work. And John uses the word craftspersonship in his, in his research and in his writing. And I have great respect for my colleagues who are craftsperson, whether it be teaching or research or outreach or service or engagement, whatever you want to call it. And what I found now was things being hoisted, being put over so that it was difficult to blend because the academic and market uh, were out of balance. As John said just a few minutes ago, Amy too, probably too much the academic values and the dysfunctions that come with it before, but now too much market values and also with all the negatives and dysfunctions associated with it to the point that the academic side is being crowded out. And so for people who seek administrative posts, it's becoming increasingly difficult to put forward a folio that is primarily um, academic values and academic logic. You have to have the market value. And I think that's why we're seeing so many people uh, getting into higher education administrative posts who have very little uh, experience in uh, the work of the academy. They haven't gone through the ranks, but they're very successful as fundraisers uh, or in other domains that are, that are essentially non-academic work. And what I find really in interesting about this is it used to be higher education's little secret. It's not anymore. If anyone has watched the film on uh, the series, miniseries, The Chair, you know that, that Sandra Oh playing the chair had a choice to make. Was she gonna go along with the higher administration uh, or was she going to embrace academic values uh, when she was confronted with a variety of issues? <laughs> I was just watching my wife and I, who's a former um, academic dean provost and department chair as well as an academic. We were watching a Scottish television series just out and the Dean of Science in this series came from the business world. And she, at a fundraising event, she got up and started talking about the work of the faculty. And then she invited the faculty, one of the faculty members to get up and follow her, of course, to, to entice and entrance the fundraisers. And the faculty member got up there and said, basically, that's not what I do. That's not what we do. 
here is what we do and why we do it and why we have passion for it. In effect, she was speaking about uh, the craft. So I'll close with this word that Amy brought up that John has written about. And the academy has been colonized in this neoliberal market economy that, that John speaks eloquently to in the last chapter of his book uh, that talks about that it, higher education has become part of the neoliberal project. The neo, it's a project in the neoliberal regime and it's largely a function of where money and status and competition from the business world has infiltrated so significantly that quite frankly, when people ask me, do you miss higher education? My response is it's not the higher education I was in for at least 20 years of my career. So how can you miss something that's hardly there anymore? Uh, and I'll close with this. And as I talk about this with folks who are in higher education and I ask them the question that John uh, wouldn't answer and I understand why as a researcher, uh, how to, you know, to answer a question as a researcher, as a scholar, I'm gonna answer it simply in terms of my interactions with colleagues. What they do is they look for safe spaces. They look to be able to find safe spaces where they can perform their craft uh, with not, without, not without the intrusion, which is always there, but to find a way to blend uh, essentially their strong embrace of academic ver uh, values and academic logic in a neoliberal environment. And I can't tell you how many people, I don't have enough fingers where they have responded, trying to find a niche, trying to find a place, trying to interact with like-minded colleagues. And some do oppose, and, but what they found is it's, it's Sisyphean. Very, very difficult because now of the length and stretch and time that neoliberalism has had in the academy. So again, thank you, John and uh, Amy, and I'll turn it back to you, Ruben. John, did you uh, have any response to that or another comment before I asked some questions? Uh, just, well, Frank, I think you said it better than me. You should have been given my talk. Um, this notion of safe spaces, uh, I think is, is worthy of consideration. Seems difficult, as I said, in some disciplines to do that. I'm thinking of again at a university, research university in the sciences and engineering, and those would be difficult. But yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think that's what I've observed too. I will say that even though uh, for the past two years I've been doing online remote instruction, I've stopped in last July. But I found that my connection with these students was a safe space uh, on, online. It, the classroom is a safe space. And the other thing I finally say is that I'm, I said I wouldn't write any more books, but I am writing another book. I thought I'd do it more personally, but it turns out it's going to be a little more academically. But it's about first-generation graduate students. And it was, it was an opportunistic kind of thing because I got to know a PhD student who was first generation from Central America. And I had a number of master's students who were first generation. I thought about this and talked to them. So I collected 30 stories across the country from first generation graduate students. 
and I there's stories here about how they got to graduate school and their experiences in graduate school. And 80% of them were students of color. And most and of the 80%, probably another 70% were uh Latinx students. So to some extent, it's a kind of a not a great sample. I mean, it's a good sample, but not a representative sample. But what surprised me was their complete void in the sort of political economy of the country. Their stories had nothing to do with neoliberalism, had nothing to do with materialism, except they were poor. <laughs> but it was about these sort of personal, personal stories of their experiences and the people they encountered along the way, teachers, counselors, faculty members, undergraduates who helped them along the way, and their own resilience and grit and talent. And it surprised me that the things that preoccupy us, neoliberalism and colonialism and all of that, it's not in, it's not in their, they don't talk about it. I mean, it's in their experience, but they don't talk about that. It's not what bothers them. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. We'll see what the book becomes. Thank you, John. I uh, have some some questions. I would like to take us to the thirty thousand foot level. I know that you are inside the academy. You're looking at managerialism. You're looking at the way that faculty behaviors are shaped, and so on. And I know there there was different when I started in nineteen eighty four. I recall the chair of my department. Um, going on and on about the notion of students as customers and so on. I didn't know at the time what was going on. And I still argue that uh, neoliberal logics were imposed on us in stealth mode. We, most of us did not know what was happening until we decided to take a close look at it. But there have been some, some major changes. You know, there's a, a college education was supported by the states and the governments because they believed that it was a public good and that informed citizen would be citizenry would be good for the society and moving it forward and so forth. It's now been turned into a private good and you're the one that benefits from it. So you pay for it and so on. Uh, so there's, there's been some changes, but also uh, I want to get to this notion of big data versus big theory or grand theory. You know, I was educated at a time when we were still thinking about big theories and so on. And you know, there's been a lot of specialization that's taken place from that, but uh, I'd like to know, you know, what exactly is the educational aspect of the academy today in this context with students as customers and what does it mean to be college educated today? And, you know, you talk about the production of knowledge and what, you know, what I see is a endless list of empirical studies that, you know, People, you know, you produce a study and somebody cites it or talks about it, and that's considered knowledge. But in my day, I thought the community of social scientists determined what was knowledge, not one empirical study. Uh, so there's just this tremendous transformation that I see of the academy. And uh, I wonder if you could speak to some of those issues. Well, let me, yeah, I'll talk about this sort of publication of empirically based journal articles, really. That's that's become the coin of the realm. And I think what you're referring to is the, the Burton Clark, who you may remember is the sociologist and did the studies of education, said, 
I write books because they stand up. He didn't write a good many articles. He wrote books. And I must say that, like you, similar generation, I thought books were, and I come from an English literature background, I thought books were the sort of coin of the realm. And that in a book, you brought together all of the knowledge in a particular field. You may have done research. In my case, I always do research. But you kind of put them both together and then you speak out to the world in this self You can't do that in a 30-page article. But that's what has become the coin of the realm in terms of promotion, publication, records, all of that is these articles and they have to be empirical articles. And I also think they're just little tiny pieces really of a bigger piece, which could be a book, but most people don't write the book. They just do the little pieces and keep going. And if you notice a lot of scholars, they're, they're not rounding out their, their research in the social sciences. They're either continuing on with the same old thing, you know, let's try it this way, let's try it that way, let's have a different control group. I, I agree. I don't think that's no, I don't think that's knowledge per se. I think that's scholarship. I guess it's it's research that can lead to scholarship. And so I can cite it. I mean, my greatest talent has always been, and I've lost it since I've been retired, is that I could cite everything ever written, you know, with the name and the date. You know, I, I was thinking when you were talking about um, uh, Keller, I think it's 85 is Keller. Uh, and, the, and I haven't looked at Keller for a long time. But he writes based on Peters and Waterman, who are the business gurus. And I think it was 78, which was their work. And that was in response to the Japanese, you know, the, the Japanese uh, industrial change. And Peters and Waterman said that, you, you know, America's lunch is going to be, uh, they're going to be eaten for lunch by the Japanese. So all of that, you know, sort of, is that knowledge? It's not really knowledge, but it's if you can see it all and you can put it all together, then I think you're amassing some sense of knowledge. I think that that's, and I think that's what Burton Clark did to some extent, and probably some of the older sociologists, Goffman probably uh, did. Um, we don't do that much. Now, the Europeans are better at this than we are, I think, in higher ed. They're more theoretically oriented. So they'll start with or talk about a theory they may mention a study they've been doing. They'll try to give you the bigger picture. U.S. higher education scholarship is, is theory poor or theory absent in most cases. It's mostly small theory. You know, it's a little bit like in higher education, the, the biggest topic is student attrition or student persistence. And a lot of that's based on, um, you know, the study of, uh, and again, I'm losing his name, uh, but he used Durkheim's theory of suicide to talk about dropout, stopout, and continuation. And that's been in vogue for 50 years. And the only thing that's changed that has been the inclusion now of race, gender, but mostly race in higher education. He said, wait a minute, um, that theory doesn't apply to African-Americans, that theory doesn't apply. So somebody else comes up with a variation on that and does a study of persistence of African-American students. So we're digging down deeper and deeper. And then we're, 
and I encountered that a lot when I did my work on community colleges, because I thought, firstly, scholars in higher education in the United States ignore community colleges largely, and they talk about higher education as if it's all research universities. And the reason I think is that they get most of their samples of students in their own classes in, in research universities. And so they do psychologically oriented studies of student persistence. Um, though we've got, to, we've got to break out of that in the United States. I think we can. Uh, I don't know how exactly, maybe collaboration with women's studies, gender studies, critical race, I don't know, just move across uh, the, the academy and do more uh, interdisciplinary uh, research. But I appreciate your time and your, uh, okay. your insights. I, I really uh, appreciate the dialogue as well. Uh, Amy, any uh, final comments before we uh, take off here? No, Ruben, I, I think I appreciate this conversation. I've noted down a lot of things that I want to follow up on here um, related to the DEI conversation, related to the first generation students conversation, um, and, and then following up on this um, thinking through, you know, academic values and, and, and market values and, and that relationship. So I, I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for including me. Thank you for joining us. Frank? Any comments? Well, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I echo what, uh, what Amy said. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so important, uh, we focus on our work, but that work takes place in a context. And so being able to have language to understand the context and be able to say, gee, I never thought about it that way, to give you food for thought. And, uh, John, I thank you for, for helping in that regard, uh, Amy and Ruben. Uh, it's it's really important. These are these are not easy times. No times are easy, but they every time has its uh, special challenges. And the question is, how are we going to respond? So, uh, thanks for hosting, Ruben. Great job as always. Thank you, Frank and John. Thank you for thank joining. You. Us. Thank you. Last word. No, thank you, everyone. You really, I I messed up a little bit in the beginning. I'm sorry about that, but I really did enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Looking forward to your next book. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Take Thank care. You. Good to meet you all.